Just as a continuation of that song, it uh, talks about pouring out uh, the praise of our lips. Is there anything someone here this morning would just like to, right where you sit, I know it's not going to make it on the little uh, live stream, but something you would like to give praise to the Lord for, just right where you sit. Some, someone give a praise to the Lord that's in your heart. All his blessings. All right. Anybody else? Anybody else? Anyone else? Anyone else? Sometimes we're pretty theoretical about our praise, aren't we? Or, or, or we're vague. And I think it's good just to give praise. Thank you for uh, praising the Lord with your lips for specific things this morning. I'd like to invite you to turn to Ezra chapter 3 this morning. Ezra chapter, chapter 3. And we're continuing on in this historical story found in the Old Testament of the returning exiles leaving uh, Babylon and coming back to Jerusalem. And uh, we come to the point in the story where it's very early in the trip back. This, I suppose the first wave of folks have come back. It says in Ezra chapter 2 verse 70 that uh, the different ones have settled now in their cities. They found their place. They've kind of got their houses, uh, their households set up. And now it's time to begin the rebuilding, to do the work that God had stirred their hearts up to do. The thing really that was the, the pinnacle of why uh, God brought them back. And that was to restore the temple. And so the people gathered together. They, they've got their different cities all over Israel. But now they come together as one man or as one person. They're unified for this one person. They come to the city of Jerusalem is where they gather. And you know, that's the historical place where the temple once stood. And, and uh, the foundations are still there to some extent. And they're going to rebuild for this one purpose. United in purpose to reestablish the priority in the place of worship as God had given them to do. Today's story in Ezra chapter 3, we're just going to look at verses 1 through 6. It focuses on the rebuilding of the altar. All right, the rebuilding of the altar. And, and really this is maybe a little bit of just taking you along in a, a Bible study, if you will, particularly about the altar. And then trying to make and draw out some connections between this Old Testament altar that they're now going to restore and what it says to us as Christians for modern day, if you will, worship. How it is relevant in our lives for the topic of worship. You know, if you drive by 
down here on Highway 65 and you look at our church sign, it's going to tell you about Wednesday night, it's going to tell you about Sunday school at 9.30, and then it's going to say Sunday worship at 10.30. And so I think that worship is a word, sometimes we refer to it as the thing that we do at 10.30, sometimes we refer to uh, just the singing portion maybe of our church gathering on Sundays as worship, uh, and it's a word that really, I think it passes by our attention we don't often stop and just really think about what is worship to be. And I think this picture and this story of the altar maybe says some things to us about what worship is and the importance of it. Really, I don't know. You know, I grew up in church, and, and uh, the thing that we did together in the big gathering of the church, we just called it the service, right? The, the service. We didn't call it the worship service. I don't know when worship entered the, the uh, vocabulary as the thing that we do, but I think it's an appropriate thing. But that's what we're going to do. We're going to think about and study a little bit about the altar, the altar of God, and then try to connect it with worship. So let's read in Ezra chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, as we continue on in our study of this epic moment in history of God's people. Now when the seventh month came and the sons of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and his brothers the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brothers, arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to, burn, burn, to offer burnt offerings on it as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So they set up the altar on its foundation, for they were terrified because of the peoples of the land. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. They celebrated the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and offered the fixed number of burnt offerings daily, according to the ordinance, as each day required. And afterward there was a continual burnt offering also for the new moons and for all the fixed festivals of the Lord that were consecrated and from everyone who offered a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. Let's take a few moments as we begin to just try to make sure that we're all on the same page and understand the concept of an altar, a concept of religious altars, and then specifically the altar of God. You know, and again, this is a little bit of a word study. You go back and you just start reading about the concept of altars. And, and what I found in studying this was, and I knew a little bit of it, but that altars are not just a Jewish concept, right? That we know that they are involved or uh, included in a wide range of ancient religions religious observances, but also in modern day religious observances. I remember being in junior high and I had a friend from Vietnam that they had come over and uh, when he was a, just a little baby and, and uh, man, his mom made killer egg rolls. All right, so that was our connection. And his name was Alf, or Alfred. And, uh, and uh, so Alf invited me to come to his house one day, and I was like, yeah, that sounds good, egg rolls. That's what I'm thinking, you know? And, and uh, we go, and we walk in, and uh, right over in the living room was this shrine. It was a Buddhist altar. That, that's what it was. It was a home altar or shrine. And I remember there was this statue, or I would call it an idol, of Buddha. 
and there was incense burning, and there was food and drink on that altar. I was like, is that egg rolls? And he said, do not touch that. It was something very serious to them. It, it, it was an altar for their religious observances. And I don't know how serious he was about it, but his parents were certainly serious. And he did take it somewhat seriously when I tried to get the food off of it. I remember my neighbor telling me a story about a missing calf in one of his front fields. And uh, they went out searching for this calf and they could see where someone had drugged this little calf under the fence. They could actually see it going through the grass They'd called the sheriff, and, and this was just a few years ago, right there where I lived. And uh, they went over, the story that I was told was they went across the road, and there on a big flat rock, someone had slaughtered that calf. And what they said was it was obviously a part of some sort of religious observance and sacrifice. And I say that to say, you can study about religions ancient and even today, and you will find that altars occupy a central place for many religions. It's a place where people come to pay homage or to submit themselves, if you will, to some spirit or deity or God. And I say that to say people are religious. People are worshipers and always have been. It is in our hearts to worship, to find that thing that is greater than us and to give ourselves to it, all right? So let's think about the significance or the purpose of altars. Usually they're a set-aside place just like in my friend's home. It's a little place demarcate, that demarcates a sacred or special place because they view it as a place where they might encounter God or gods or some deity. We read here in, in the passage that the, as the altar was being reestablished that central to that purpose was what? Burnt offerings. So it's a place where sacrifices or offerings to God or spirits or perceived deities would occur on those altars. Not just the killing or the shedding of blood would occur, but there would be burning of things, maybe burning of incense or even the burning of these offerings. So burnt offerings have been done on these altars. Sometimes the sacrifices, if it was an animal sacrifice, it would be performed right there on the altar. All right, and sometimes maybe it was uh, sacrificed elsewhere and then placed on the altar. But the point is that these places are viewed as sacred spots. Boundaries, if you will, to where a person, a worshiper comes and brings a sacrifice or an offering to that which they are submitting themselves to and worshiping. Altars sometimes are places of remembrance. I've been, it's amazing as you start studying a word or a theme throughout the Bible and you're reading all over the place in the week, you'll find it occurring in places you'd never even thought of. And I was reading about how Jacob, on his way to, um, uh, to find a bride, he's going along and he encounters God. Or God comes to him and speaks to him. And what does Jacob do? It says he, he builds an altar there. 
An altar is a place, sometimes it's just a memorial place. It's to think about a place where maybe we encountered God or had a religious experience. And so Jacob builds an altar there and he offers a sacrifice as a memorial. And he will one day come back to that very place and he'll remember that. And he'll think about God's faithfulness. And he will submit his life to that God, the God of his fathers and the God of Jacob. And so an altar represents that which we are giving ourselves to especially when it comes to deities or to God. And so an altar represents a place where humans give themselves to that which they perceive as greater than themselves. But then there is the altar of God. This is not just any altar that they are rebuilding. It is the altar of God. And so this altar there in Jerusalem that was in the temple, now it's, you know, it had been destroyed and they're uh, um, rebuilding it, it had very distinctive purposes. It's easy to think, well, all religions are kind of the same. They all have altars, all have sacrifice. People give offerings to a perceived God, whatever. You come to verse 3, and it says this is uh, an altar placed on the foundation. It goes back to the historical religion that they had. It was the altar that was prescribed by God to Israel through Moses. It was written in the law. I want to invite you to turn back, if you would, in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 12. And I want to show you here that the altar of God is different than the altars of all of the other ancient religions. There are specific things and meaning, meanings and promises associated with this altar of God. So we know exactly what we're talking about that they're rebuilding. We're going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 12 verses 1 through 7 now. This is the giving of the law. And it's the re-giving of the law. When the people are to go into the land, God has said, this is what you're going to do. All right, so let's read Deuteronomy 12 verses 1 through 7. It says, these are the statutes and the judgments which you shall carefully observe in the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess as long as you live on the earth. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations whom you uh, shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and burn their ashram with fire. And you shall cut down the engraved images of their gods and obliterate their names from that place. You shall not act like this toward the Lord your God, but you shall seek the Lord at the place which your, the Lord your God will choose from all your tribes to establish his name there for his dwelling, and there you shall come. There you shall bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the contribution of your hand, your votive offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. There, you sh uh, there also you and your households shall eat before the Lord your God and rejoice in all your undertakings in which the Lord your God had blessed you. And so what we see here is that this altar of God is something altogether different than the Canaanite religions. They had altars with these ashram. If you read about and study about some of those things, they, those uh, altars of the Canaanites and different religions often were filled with debauchery and very unholy things, sinful things, all sorts of observances. And God says, that is not the kind of worship that I want. Unholy and debauched and sinful all right, not to mention the false gods. I don't want you to go in and commandeer their altars. I want you to completely destroy that junk. And then you will build an altar 
that is holy and set apart to me. All right, it's important to realize that worship is not just worship. It's not all the same. And they were to realize that. Old Testament and even New Testament alike, often speaking about altars, talks about altars of false worship, and God says, get rid of that. That is not helpful. Actually, that leads you astray. And so there would be the decommissioning and the destruction of these altars with which the worship God was not pleased. It did not honor God. It did not lead people to God. And so there is a true worship. And then there is worship which leads astray. And it is not helpful. And God does not approve of. So the altar of God would be in the temple of God in the place that God chose for his people. And there they would offer burnt offerings. And they wouldn't just burn up those offerings. Right? And it wasn't just the things that they had to do. Some of it was free will. It's what they wanted to do. And they would participate in the altar and the sacrifices. They would eat of some of the sacrifices. They would be a part of it. And it would be a part of them. And it would shape them in their understanding of God. It would be a meaningful thing. And there at the altar, the people would rejoice in what God had done for them. So the altar was a place of rejoicing and thanksgiving for the goodness of God and for the blessings of God. So, a little bit about altars and the altar of God. Now I want us to notice the centrality of the altar of God for these returning exiles. You know, it's odd to me a little bit that they start with the altar. Why? we were told that they were going back to rebuild the temple, the big edifice. But before any stones and timbers and windows and doors and all of those things go up, they decide that they're going to build the altar first. Why? Verse 3 actually gives a surprising answer. It's because they're terrified of the people of the land who are no longer, God, they are not God worshipers. They're not part of the covenant community and they're going to stand against what's happening. And it says they're terrified so they build the altar and I'm going if I was terrified of the people I would build a fort I would build walls and a roof I would build weapons I don't know that an altar would, especially where we're going to start burning stuff and sending up smoke I've watched enough old westerns to know you know you don't just make a fire out in the open when the enemies are all around and yet they reestablish the altar first of all because they're terrified of the people of the land and here is I think has to be the reasoning because they knew that apart from God they could do nothing that whatever they did if they did not have the presence and the blessing of God they had nothing. It was God's presence, folks, that set these people apart from every other people's. His presence going before them and with them. His guidance. His protection. God's presence is what made them different. And it was there at the altar where they would experience God's presence. If you look back, Exodus chapter 29, I'm not going to ask you to go there now, but you can just write down that reference. If you look back, and I will read you the, kind of the money quote from Exodus 29, speaking about the altar that was there in the tabernacle of Moses. God made a promise in Exodus 29 to the people. And this is, I think, where their thoughts went back to. It says, there at that holy altar... 
that was first in the tabernacle and then it was transferred to the more permanent dwelling of the temple, God said that throughout all generations, listen to this, there at the altar, throughout all generations, I will meet there with the sons of Israel. And that altar will be consecrated by my glory. And I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. They understood that there at the altar that they would meet with God and that they would experience his glory in some sort of manifestation that changed them, that empowered them, that encouraged them, that guided them, and God himself would be there with them. And so I think they rebuilt the altar, first of all, because they knew it was the very presence of God that they needed the most. I wonder if the church today has that same view. That more than anything, we need God himself. That is our greatest need. Not more money. Not more programs. Not anything more than God himself. That is central to what we should be about. It is central to our worship. And so they had the expectation of God meeting with them and then meeting with God and having, yes, an experience with the glory of God there at the altar. And so the altar was central. And I would say this to you, that worship is indeed central to what the church does. Fellowship with other Christians, wonderful. Evangelizing and going out to reach the lost, absolutely essential. But not more central than meeting with God himself. You know, the first phrase in our church mission statement is what? Anybody know? Well, good, because we're going to change the mission statement. <laughs> now we're going we're to revisit it anyway. But it's connecting with God. It's connecting with God. Connecting is kind of a common word. It's a, it's a popular buzzword today. I would say worshiping God, knowing God is the first and foremost thing of what we should be about. When you come to this place on Sunday mornings, is that your expectation? That in this place, in some way, you will draw nearer to God and he will draw nearer to you. It should be. It should be. That should be right up front in our vision. That people would encounter God, the truth of God, the power of God, the presence of God, living through his people, through the work of the Spirit. I think that should be an expectation. I think these people got that. And so before they put up the building, what did they do? They go to the ancient foundation where the altar had been and they rebuilt it. Because that was the place where they would meet with God and, if you will, worship. All right, so finally what I want to do is bridge now to the Christian significance of the altar of God. The Christian significance. You know, it's all well and good for me to read these stories and go, ooh, here's, here's a thing to think about, here's a thing to think about. But now I want to for us to just think about what the New Testament says specifically about the altar of God, the Christian significance of the altar. Because you could say, man, well, yeah, that was a great history lesson, man. I'm, I'm, really, uh, I'm really up on, on Buddhist altars now, and, uh, you know, I know some things about that, but what does it say for us today? Should we reestablish an altar like this 
in 2022? Is, is, is it even possible to do that? Is it heresy to do that? What, what should we think as Christians about rebuilding altars? You know, and, and I, let me just go ahead and say this. You know, we call this an altar. These are steps. <laughs> this is a stage. But, but in our mind, we, you know, we've kind of set aside. Maybe we use this as a place where people can do business with God if they want to. So I don't think it's wrong to call it an altar. But it's not an altar in the sense of what they were building, correct? To actually slaughter animals. As far as I know, no one has been slaughtered on these, or nothing, has been slaughtered right up here. There's no blood stains or anything. There's no horns on the altar where we bind our goats and sheep. All right? So, so we're thinking about, is it right? Should we? Should we cut out a section of this and get some stones or, or overlay a box with bronze and bring in goats and sheep? The question is, what do we do with altar building as Christians, New Testament Christians, today? Should we actually establish an altar where people give sacrifices, do sacrifices, and give offerings? And my answer is, does the New Testament commend that? The answer is no. No, we should not build this kind of altar. Why? Why is it not for the church? Here's why. Because all of those animal sacrifices and burnt offerings were a shadow that were pointing to something. It pointed to the sin of the worshiper. The fact that we are not right with God because of our sin. And something needs to be done. And sin deserves death. And so those sacrificed animals that they would do, it represented, you know, something taking our place, bearing our sin's burden to appease the wrath of God. And God hates sin because it, because it is deadly, because it hurts, because it mars his glory. And so they would offer these animals. God told them to do that. But that was all a shadow pointing forward to Jesus. And the Bible says that Jesus is the sacrificial lamb once and for all slain for the sins of the world. All of those sheep and goats were pointing forward to a greater fulfillment of what we need and that is Jesus. I'm not going to uh, go here either with you but I would encourage you to read Hebrews chapter 9 and 10 where here are some Jewish Christians who are, they're actually living in the day when they're still doing those sacrifices in the temple. But, but they're believers in Christ and they're asking the question and they're grappling with, should we still go and be a part of that? Should we still have that lamb or goat's blood sprinkled on us? And the writer of the Hebrews says, no. That age is passing away. That was the shadow. Jesus is the fulfillment. What you need is the blood of Jesus. Here's what it says in Hebrews 9 and 10. We have confidence to enter the holy place, that is the very presence of God, by the blood of Jesus, which is applied to us. You know, one of the things they did when they sacrificed those animals, the worshiper would come and they would take hyssop and they would dip it in the blood and they would sling it on them. And it would get on them and the blood would come on them. Pretty graphic. You would remember that. And the writer of Hebrews says, you've had the blood of Jesus sprinkled on you, not literally, but by faith. And that is what cleanses your conscience from your sin. You are sprinkled clean, folks, not by some goat's blood, but by the blood of Jesus. You don't have to steal your neighbor's calf and go kill it to appease the deities or God. 
God's wrath was laid on Jesus. He took the penalty for our sins. And we are called to believe that, to participate in that by believing on him and submitting our lives to him. That's what we're to do. Not coming to some bronze altar in a temple somewhere to have blood shed. It's already been done in Jesus. And so God says it's a new covenant. Now that is the altar to which you come. Jesus is where you need to come. If your conscience is marred by sin in your life, if you know that you have done wrong and you're separated from God by your sins, come to Jesus. If you've already come to Jesus and you are a Christian and you're struggling with sin in your life like we all have, you know what you need to do? Realize that the blood of Jesus cleanses. You don't have to come and sacrifice. It's already been done by Jesus. But there are some symbolic ways, and I need to rip through this pretty fast, some symbolic ways that the New Testament does come into us an altar. All right, not a bronze or stone altar in some temple somewhere, but it does speak about altars. And I think the first and foremost is it corresponds to worship. We are to worship. In Acts chapter 17, verse 23, Paul comes to Mars Hill and he's looking at the religious people and all of their altars and the, the gods that they're sacrificing and he sees this altar to the unknown God. And finally, it just breaks and Paul can't take it anymore. And he says, man, I, you people, I see that you're very religious, but you're worshiping in ignorance. You're even going to the unknown God. That means I don't know. I don't know God. He says, you can know God. An altar, he says, at this altar you are worshiping. So an altar equates with our worship. It's the place that we come where we want to be right with God. We want to meet God. We want to know God. And here's what Paul says. He said, you're worshiping in ignorance. And, and God has overlooked that ignorance in the past. But now he has done something that he expects all men, all people from all places to hear about and to accept and to know. And that is Jesus. And Jesus went to a cross and he became the altar we come to. And God raised him from the dead. And he requires all men everywhere now to repent and to believe on Jesus. The man he has chosen who will judge all peoples. God has committed to Jesus the judgment of all peoples. He is the standard. And so Paul says, what you need to do, the altar, you need to set up is Jesus in your heart. You can know God not as the unknown God, but as Jesus Christ our Savior, and our King. And that's what he says. He says, Jesus is to be the object, to be the center of your worship. We're to worship in truth, not ignorance. And he says, submit your life to Jesus. Know him. Worship him. I love the songs that we sang today because that's exactly what it pointed us to. It's, it's not I, but it's Christ in me. It's about Jesus, our Redeemer, our Redeemer, the resurrected one. And so an altar represents worship. And we come and we worship at the feet of Jesus. And so worship is commended to us. And in our worship, you know what we should be about? Lifting up Jesus. And there's a lot of places that we can set our eyes and our attention and our focus when we come into this room. There's a lot of places. There are a lot of distractions. There are a lot of different things going on. But you know where we need to find our eyes? The, the eyes of our heart need to be looking to Jesus. 
And those of us who preach and sing and all of those things, when we pray, you know what we need to do? We need to lift people's eyes and focus to Jesus. Amen? He's the center of it all. He's where people need to get to in our worship. We're here to exalt Jesus. The New Testament also draws on the imagery of sacrifice as appropriate for Christians. I just told you that you're not supposed to sacrifice. You're supposed to sacrifice spiritual sacrifices, not blood sacrifices. Romans 12.1 is a, a perfect example of that. And it says this, in view of God's mercies, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing unto God, for this is your spiritual act of worship. You know what? These worshipers in the Old Testament, they were offering sacrifices to be accepted by God. You know what the New Testament says? That we sacrifice as Christians spiritual sacrifices because we are accepted. In view of God's mercies, he has forgiven us. The blood has been spilled. And so we offer spiritual sacrifices in view of that. What is the spiritual sacrifice that we're supposed to alter? Uh, to offer. It's John Racing. Come up here, John. I've got my knife here. Okay, don't. No, don't. It's a spiritual sacrifice, not a physical sacrifice. You know what it is? It's yourself. He says, offer your bodies, your very self, as a living sacrifice. Don't, don't. God's not calling you to. He's calling you to give yourself. In view of God's mercies, he has saved you and brought you out of death and darkness into light, into the marvelous light. And the only response to that, if we see it clearly, if you have been saved, then the blinders of your eyes have come off to see Jesus. He says the only proper response is to give everything that you have to him, to give yourself to him. And I think that's one of the things that we do here in worship is that it's a reminder as we get our eyes on Jesus and the truth of the gospel and the truth of our salvation and the resurrection, one of the things it should do is help to remind us how great is our Redeemer. And how great is that eternal life and how worthy He is of everything that we have. And He says, that's your spiritual act of worship. Offer yourself a spiritual sacrifice in view of the fact that you're accepted by God in Jesus. Give your entire life to him. And I think that when we come together on Sunday, and we come back to the altar of Jesus, and we hear the gospel again, and we see him lifted high, worship is the revelation of the truth of God, and it's the personal response that we have to that. And it's calling us again to lay down our lives. I think it was Rick Warren said, you know, the problem with a living sacrifice is that it continues to crawl off of the altar. And I think that during the week, many times we lose sight of Jesus and we crawl away off the altar. And it's a reminder as we come back to worship again, man, Jesus is worthy of everything that I am and all that I can give. 1 Peter 2, 5 says the exact same thing. It says, we are, as a church, we are the people of God, the spiritual household of God, a spiritual priesthood who are to offer spiritual sacrifices. Gives a little bit more about what that might look like in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, spiritual sacrifices that God accepts through Jesus are these. To proclaim his excellencies. It's to lift up God. It's to lift up Jesus with our lips. 
That's a spiritual sacrifice. It's to tell about Jesus. It's to make everything not about me or how great I am, but to tell how great he is. And he also says this, and to do good, to share with those who have need. That's in Hebrews 13, 15 as well. Give thanks to Jesus. Share with others who have need. Let me just cast a, a quick uh, glance over at this idea of spiritual sacrifices and offerings and giving as an act of worship. Ultimately, what worship is to be about is submitting myself to the thing that is most worthy of my life. And the Bible says that it's God himself, it's Jesus. That he is the most worthy, he is the most beautiful, he is the greatest being, the most high. Nothing is better than him. Nothing will bring us more lasting joy than him. And yet we have all of these things in our life that we sometimes get to thinking, actually, I think that'll bring me more happiness and joy. A true spiritual sacrifice of worship is getting our minds right and seeing things as they really are again and treasuring Jesus more than anything and saying, you know what, I'm willing to give up some money or stuff for the greater glory of God. Sharing the stuff that tends to maybe draw me in as an idol in my life. And I think that's what Hebrews 13, 15 is talking about. Doing good, sharing with others. Worship and proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus in part is about showing the world that there is nothing more worth your life and giving yourself to than Jesus. Not Buddha. Not Mohammed. Not Cadillac cars. Not pensions. Not political power. Not sexual conquests. Not drugs or drink. None of that is worthy of your life. Only Jesus is. Jesus our Redeemer. So let me tie a bow on this thing and summarize where we've been. Again, this is just a little bit of a biblical survey as we think about altars and worship. Maybe I'm going to address this topic a little bit further from a different passage next week. Maybe I won't. I don't know. We'll see. If y'all come and say, man, we got it. Worship is revolutionized. I'm moving on. No, I think this is actually worth us stopping and just uh, dwelling on it for a little bit because it's central to who we are and what we do. But here is tying up the bow. Worship is something that you do. It's something that everyone does. Submitting our lives to that which we see is infinitely valuable. And that gets obscured. And people everywhere are worshiping the wrong things. Worshiping in ignorance. Worshiping vainly. Which means they're doing the stuff but it's not in their heart. This is a call back to true worship of what is good and right from the heart. And as we view these folks rebuilding the altar of worship, what I would say is it invites us to come to the real and lasting altar, which is the Lamb of God who is slain for you. If you would be a true worshiper, I would ask, have you come to Jesus? That's, that's where you have to come. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by Him. In Him, all the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily. You can only know God ultimately through Jesus. Have you come to him and been saved? 
Rebuilding the altar of worship invites us to make much of God, to make much of Him in this world, to show people that He is the true treasure that we long for. He is what our hearts ultimately desire, even though we try to find satisfaction in other things. The altar of worship and its rebuilding invites us to make spiritual sacrifices and offerings to God. Not because we think that it's going to appease God, but because he has already been satisfied through Jesus. He has accepted us in the beloved. And we want other people to know that Jesus is what ultimately satisfies. And so the altar of worship does invite us to make spiritual sacrifices, to give of our stuff and our wealth and the things that we have for the glory of God, to bring others to know God and to exalt and to magnify and to proclaim Him in a world that is ultimately not satisfied. I want to invite you to do something this week. Look around at the people in your life People on your news feeds, your Facebook feeds, or whatever social media you've got. Listen to conversations in the break room. Look at the commercials in front of your eyes. I want to invite you to look and examine what people think is going to make them happy. What are the things that people seem to worship? Where are the altars in our current day? And you know what? As you look to those things, then I would invite you to say, is this an altar of idol worship in my life? Have I somehow fallen for the deceitful lies that something other than Jesus is going to make me happy? And then what I would say to you is, as you look at those things, look at those who are promoting and pushing it. Look at those people who have all of that. And look and see, do those people genuinely seem like they're satisfied and happy? Have they reached a place where their heart is content? Or are they still grabbing for more and more and more? I think the truth is our hearts were made for God. We were made to walk with Him in fellowship. And we will never be satisfied until we drink deeply from that well. Until we know Him and experience His life and his beauty, and his presence, and his glory. Would you bow with me? Father, today, I'm asking that you would do a work in our hearts of rebuilding our understanding again afresh and anew of what you call us to be, of how we are to worship in spirit and in truth. Lord, in places where maybe the right things have been torn down or we've been far away or where it's just become obscured in our vision. God, I ask that you would renew our vision for the centrality of a heart worship that knows you and experiences you deeply. And God, I just believe that you have called your people to week in and week out come together and to worship, to bow down before you to proclaim your excellencies, to lift high the cross of Jesus Christ and to help other people come to Christ. And so in the things that we do in this place when we gather, 
God, I pray that you would just infuse them with a fresh wind and a fresh fire. I pray that you would renew our understanding, deepen us, help us to grow. But God, help us to experience your glory in our daily lives. Help our hearts be satisfied in you. And we pray these things in the everlasting and saving name of Jesus. Amen. John's going to come at this time, and we're going to have our uh, birthday and anniversary celebration. So uh, you get to practice some of this. You get to bring offerings today, right, if you want to. Before we uh, celebrate our birthdays and anniversaries, a couple things I forgot to mention earlier is uh, contribution statements. They are available. Uh, if you go out the doors, they're on the table to the left uh, side there on there, and they're in alphabetical order. So the end year uh, giving statements. And then also, uh, we've got a youth event coming up that we're hosting here on March 11th and 12th. And uh, I mentioned it in the business meeting last week. Um, but it's open to 7th through 12th graders. We do have some youth groups that have incorporated 6th grade into their youth group. And so we're kind of expanding that to 6th grade uh, as well. But we're hosting it here with uh, Brock Gill. We'll start putting that in the, in the bulletin. And uh, he's an amazing speaker. And uh, right now he's hosted a, a show on Discovery Channel, The Miracles of Jesus. And he's hosting one on Angel TV right now, amongst other things. He writes for LifeWay Youth stuff. So we're excited to have that coming up on the 11th and 12th. And if you are willing and able to help, uh, we're hosting it. And then a friend, uh, the other youth minister, Bear Creek, we're hosting it. So we're going to need probably a few extra hands just to kind of keep an eye on everybody. Uh, as word is kind of spread out, uh, we're looking at churches from Rogers, Hollister, Marshall uh, coming over. So uh, it's exciting, uh, but also needing some help. So... That's the end of the month, so we celebrate birthdays and anniversaries, and uh, you can stand up and share your birthday anniversary. Uh, many of the people in our church give uh, to the birdhouse. Uh, that money goes to the Arkansas Baptist Children's Home, and every year, three, four, five thousand dollars $5,000, we are able to give through that uh, to the children's home. And so, uh, or you can stand up where you're at, or if you don't like crowds at all, you just kind of keep it to yourself. You can do whatever. Uh, but is it your birthday or anniversary this month? Forty-eight years. Katie's a teenager. Birthday? I'm not going to ask. Oh, the same day? Oh, same number of years. Don't ask, don't tell. It's your birthday? All right, happy birthday. Ninety. Birthday. It's your birthday too? 39 or 69. Memory loss already, huh? <laughs> 30, between 39 and 69 is a big number. Uh, 39 forever. Uh, we look forward to seeing everybody tonight uh, at the Lord's uh, Communion uh, tonight around the table and then fellowship afterwards. If you would stand with me as I close, and, uh, close this out in prayer this morning. Lord, this morning, what a privilege it is to be in your house, Lord. I, I pray tonight as we have the opportunity to come around the Lord's table tonight, Lord, to remember 
uh, your death and, and resurrection for the, the sin in our life, Lord. I, I pray that as we uh, go our ways, Lord, uh, and, and think about the way in which we worship you, uh, how often we worship you, and how you desire for us to have that relationship with you, Lord. Um, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.